All right, y'all, how we doing? Weak sauce, how we doing? All right, hey, if you have one of these with you, if you have a Bible, turn to the book of Daniel. Um, your Bible has an Old Testament and a New Testament. Daniel's kind of in the middle of nowhere in the Old Testament. So if you need to use that uh, table of contents in the, in the front, get a page number, flip to Daniel chapter 1. That's where we're going to be in just a minute. Um, hey, anybody else, or was it just me? That puppet scene was giving me mad, like, Sandlot vibes. Anybody else, right? It's like you, you picture all the kids hunkered down with all their machines. Has anybody not seen Sandlot in here? Okay, here's your homework. Here's your homework. For those of you who haven't seen Sandlot, go down the mountain. First thing you do, your parents are like, hi, how was it? You're like, I have homework. Just walk in and watch Sandlot, okay? Uh, my name's Austin. Um, I'm stoked to be with you guys here all week. Uh, I'm, a, I'm a high school pastor down in San Diego, uh, up here with my family, my wife Paige, and my two little girls. I have a two-and-a-half-year-old named Piper. Um, you'll see her running around, uh, the bright blonde hair. And then we have a little two-month-old named Phoebe. And so um, if you see us running around, stop us, uh, come chat with us. We're, we're excited to be with you guys all week long. But um, I'm not from San Diego originally. I'm actually, uh, I was born in the Bay Area, lived there for a little bit. So all my sports loyalties are up in the Bay. I'm a huge San Francisco Giants fan. Yeah. Hey, let's go. Come on now. I'm a really big Raiders fan. I see you. I see you with the Raiders hat, okay? I'm walking, talking proof that you can actually root for the Raiders and follow Jesus. It is possible. It's rare. It's rare, but it is possible. And then, obviously, Golden State Warriors, uh, you know, big Warriors fan. But um, I, I love sports. I grew up playing sports. My family, in the late 90s, we moved down to a place called Quito, Ecuador. Um, and I'm a, I'm a missionary kid. So I moved down there when I was seven years old, spent about 11 years of my life down in Ecuador. And to be honest with you, the move from California down to Ecuador at seven years old, like it didn't mean a whole lot. At seven, your parents are like, you're, we're moving. And you're like, all right, bet. Like, cool. Like that doesn't really. So the only thing that really changed for me was sports. I was playing baseball at the time, moved down to Ecuador, started playing a lot more soccer and uh, fell in love with the sport of soccer, played that all the way through high school, played it at Biola University, um, and just was a, was a big sports fan. We also had a lot of pets, for whatever reason, in Ecuador. I'm the youngest of four. Where are my youngest siblings at out there? Hey, let's go, okay? It, it, to be honest, it is the best being the youngest, right? Can we all just agree? Okay, thank you. But we had a lot of pets growing up. Um, we had a dog named Seamus. We had two Amazon jungle parrots named Dumb and Dumber, um, and then... Probably my favorite pet we had growing up, my, my dad. You ever, your parents ever get a phone call that you start eavesdropping in on, and all of a sudden, like, they say something interesting that piques your interest, and then all of a sudden, you, like, you, like, maybe bring the siblings over to listen in on mom or dad's conversation or grandma, grandpa, uncle, aunt, whatever it is. Like, my dad picks up the phone, and he does this. He says this, like, this is a, a kind of a rare phone call, right? And he goes, he says the word monkey, like, three or four times. And all of a sudden, I'm like, did dad just say monkey? And I'm like, yep, he said monkey. And so I'm, you know, pull the siblings over. And my dad does one of these. He, he holds the phone back and he looks at us because he's seen us now. You know, we're not inconspicuous. And he goes, y'all want a monkey? <laughs> and we're like, um, yes, right? Like there's only one answer to that question. So what had happened was one of my dad's friends had gone down into the jungle in Ecuador and got this little pocket marmoset monkey. It was like this big, tail twice as long as his body, white Fu Manchu mustache, and he brought it home and his wife said, not a chance, right? Like get that thing out of my house. My mom was traveling, okay? <laughs> she was out of town. 
So my dad says, y'all want a monkey? We get a monkey. We kick my dog out of his dog cage, and we take this monkey, and we throw him in the dog cage with like a stick and a leaf to recreate what he's used to, right? <laughs> and we're like, what, what now? And so we draw straws, and we put on like construction gloves, and we're trying to figure out what to do with this monkey. But uh, my mom came home from the airport a few days later. My dad's like, hey, play it cool. Like, I'll break it to her. I got flowers at home. I cooked a homemade meal. But of course, at the time, I'm like eight years old, so we get to the airport, and I'm like, we got a monkey, right? Like, I'm just amped to tell mom. And so we come home. Um, we named him Chime, which in a local tribal dialect means monkey. <laughs> I know, I know. Genius children, right? But I loved growing up in Ecuador. Um, it gave me this perspective of the world that I'm really thankful for. Uh, I spent 11 years of my life down uh, in ministry with my parents. Teams would come down from the U.S., and it, it really... Uh, growing up down there, was a, it was a total gift. But to be honest with you, a, a lot of growing up for me, I wrestled with what it looked like to follow Jesus. And for me, playing sports growing up, and we're going to unpack this a little bit more all week, but kind of the lens through which I love to view the story of Daniel is, for me growing up, a lot of my life was spent uh, in locker rooms and hanging out with friends that, to me, who weren't following Jesus, and they looked like they were having a whole lot more fun than me. But I would come to camps like this, or I would go to youth group, or I would go to church, or I'd be around uh, the Bible in Christianity, and a lot of my life was spent thinking that to follow Jesus or to go to church, you kind of had to live this boring life, but at the end of a boring life came heaven. And I looked at a lot of people that seemed to be having a lot more fun than I was, and I went, man... They seem to be having all the fun. They seem to be living this life that I'm, I'm kind of envious of, if I'm being honest. But I would go to a camp or I'd go to a church, and they would say, at the end of your life, there's two places. There's heaven and there's hell. And so if you follow God's rules and you read your Bible and you go to church, you get heaven. And if you don't, you go to this place called hell. And at the end of my life, I went, man, hell sounds terrible. Like the, the descriptions of eternal burning and all this stuff, I'm like, no, thank you. So I guess I choose boring now and heaven later. And it wasn't, friends, until I took a dive into this book for myself. It wasn't until about halfway through Biola University where I, I stopped going, okay, well, that's what my parents believe, or that's what my siblings believe. And I started going, all right, Lord, like, I want to wrestle with this. And to be honest with you, a lot of that came because, like, I was in a dark spot. I had chased sports, and I had chased what I wanted to do, and when I wanted to do it, and how I wanted to do it, and I found myself coming up kind of wanting, going, is this, is this it? Is this, is this really all there is? And, and so for me, it took, a, it took me diving into this book, and, and if, you're, if you've been around church, if you've been around camp forever, and I said, open up your Bible, like maybe you turned right to Daniel, because you know exactly where Daniel is. Maybe you even gave like a smug look to the person next to you, like, look how fast I got there. Right? Like some of you in here, like you know your Bibles, you know the church, you know all there is to know. And, and even as you watch the video, you're like selecting who is who in the story of Daniel. And, and maybe you're really familiar with this whole thing. And this week, my challenge for you, my invitation to you is that you, those of you who have grown up around church that know church really well, would you lean in this week? And would your prayer be, God, would you reveal yourself in a brand new way? Would I fall more in love with you this week? Would, would through your word, would your prayer be, God, I don't want this to just be a fun memory, a cool week at camp, but God, I, I want to follow you more intimately, more deeply, closer this week because of this week. But maybe you're up here 
and uh, you got maybe last minute invited to this thing. Maybe as soon as like I said, open up your Bibles, you were like, wait, what? Right? Like you were here for the opener and the dance battle and like the free time in the lake. And then as soon as we came in here and there was a worship band up here and a Bible opened, maybe you kind of went, ah. Oh. Like maybe, maybe you, you're stoked to be at camp because the homies are here. Right? Maybe you're stoked to be at camp because your friends are here. You might meet a girl. You might meet a guy. But the whole like chapel thing, not really your thing. And I would just challenge you too. Maybe this week, friend, maybe if there is a God and if he created you, if he created the world around you, what if you gave him a chance this week? What if you leaned in and didn't distract the person next to you and you just went, all right, God, if you're out there, if you're real, this week I'll try. This week I'll, I'll lean in. I'll take the AirPods out during chapel. I won't distract the person. Maybe you even go like, I, I'm not even gonna sit next to the person that's gonna distract me because I wanna give this a shot. And so this week, Ponderosa, Hume Lake, my challenge to you is just to lean in this week. That as we open up this book, which I firmly believe is the greatest story ever told that's hardly ever told in its entirety. Right? Do you know, like a lot of us have multiple copies of this book. Maybe you didn't bring your, your Bible with you to chapel uh, today, but I'm, I'm just going to challenge you to bring this with you every time we have chapel. If you don't have a Bible, see one of the people with the green bags in the back. They'll get you a Bible because this, this is the single greatest story that's ever been told. Did you know this? Do you know that this is 66 different books written by 40 different authors in three different languages on three different continents over a span of 2,000 years. And it tells one story. Do you know how nuts that is? Right? Like we live in a day and age that like if I said open up the Bible, nobody went, whoa, we're reading the Bible. We can do this. Nobody did that, right? Right, if you did, Please find me afterwards because I want to figure out how you had that. But like, I didn't say open up to the book of Daniel and y'all went, we about to hear from God. No, we, like, we don't really react that way. It's just like, it's, it's commonplace. And yet if we, if we really believe that this book is what it is, that the God of the universe who always has been and always will be has spoken, has revealed himself to us, when we open up this book whether it's for the first time or for the thousandth time, God wants to speak to us this week through his word. So if you will, I just want to pray for us that God would reveal himself to us through his word, that our time here this morning would be spent just going, God, I, I don't want to just be wowed by a chapel. I don't just want to have an experience in chapel. But would we walk out of here knowing God better? And because we know him better, would we be able to live life differently? Would we live life transformed? So pray with me. God, thank you for this morning. God, thank you for the opportunity that we have here at Hume Lake uh, to just spend a week in your creation. That as we drive up the mountain and lose cell service, and as we look out on the trees and the lake and the mountains, God, it is so obvious creation cries out that there is a creator. And we just pray this week, God, that we would get to know you better. And as we get to know you get better, God, would that not just be an intellectual ascent? Would that not just be head knowledge of you? But would we walk away from this camp changed, ready to go back home and live life differently? We love you. Thanks for loving us first. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Okay, if you are in Daniel chapter one, here's something I need from you, okay? If you're there, 
Give me a nice, loud preach. Okay, okay, I said, if you're there, this is where I need you to come in, right? Because it's like, if it's morning one of chapel, right? Like, if you're anything like me, you woke up this morning kind of like, like the drive yesterday, and we're kind of shaking it off. So we need to wake up a little bit. So if you're in Daniel chapter one, give me a nice loud preach. Preach. Hey, there it is. Okay, Daniel chapter one says this. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. Okay, pause right there and look up at me. This is the Bible's way of saying this. This is a real time in a real place and real people. Okay, like the Bible doesn't just start out like this because that's a cool way to start a letter or to start a book. No, but it says in the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim. So here's what you can actually do. If you're one of those people sitting here that goes like, is this, is this Bible like the real deal? Or is this just like fairy tales? Like this is like a couple thousand year old book. Like what does it have to do with 2023? It's outdated. Here's the cool thing about the Bible. You can actually go into history and find King Jehoiakim and look at the third year of his reign and go, oh wow, actually there was this nation called Israel and they were exiled out of their land into this Babylonian empire. And the Bible is not just like this fairy tale story to teach some lessons. No, it's, it's true in history. It stands up against science. It stands up against archaeology. There have been over 25,000 archaeological digs in the last 2,000 years, and every single one of them proves that this book stands by its dates and its times and its people. It's trustworthy. So when we open this up, here's what I love. The Bible's not just a story about what happened back then. The Bible's a story about what happens, okay? So the Bible's not just a story about what happened. The Bible's a story about what happens. So as we read this, the goal is not that we would just learn something about history. The goal is that we would learn something about our God. And every time we open up this book, would we go, all right, God, I want to learn more about you. I want to understand you more. Because sometimes we do this, right? We do the whole, like, Toy Story 8 ball. We're like, all right, God, if you're real, we're like, what should I do today? We just open up our Bible and we're like, mm, the descendants of Ephraim, Shuthalah, Bered his son, Tahath his son, Eladea his son, Tabath his son. I'm gonna have a son. <laughs> right? and, and we treat the Bible like it's some sort of like genie in a bottle. And, and I wanna open up the book of Daniel and go, hey, let's dive into this book this week and get to know this God. Okay, so real time, real people, real place. Jehoiakim is king of Judah. Israel is split into two empires, two nations at this point. You have Israel in the north and Judah in the south. Over the, over the course of Israel's history, they have about 42 kings. Jehoiakim, his reign was about 11 of those years, and you have good kings and bad kings. And essentially, good kings are the kings that listen to God and do what he says. There's a trust factor there. Bad kings are the ones that listen to God and then go, hmm, I'm gonna try things my way. And we see this over and over and over and over and over again, right? If you read the book of like 2 Kings or 1 Kings, you'll see a king came into power and did something, they, they did evil in the eyes of the Lord or they listened to God and did what he said. Those are kind of the two options here. So King Jehoiakim, uh, he's king in the third year of his reign. The king of Babylon comes into Jerusalem, the capital city, and he besieges it. 
It says, the Lord delivered Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand, along with some of the articles from the temple of God. These he carried off into the temple of his God in Babylonia and put them in the treasures, and put the treasure house in the house of his God. Then the king ordered Ashpenaz, chief of his court officials, to bring into the king's service some of the Israelites from the royal family and the nobility, young men without any physical defect, handsome, showing aptitude for every kind of learning, well-informed, quick to understand, and qualified to serve in the king's palace. He was to teach them the language and the literature of the Babylonians. The king assigned them a daily amount of food and wine from the king's table. They were to be trained for three years, and after that, they were to enter into the king's service. Okay, you ever picked up a show in like the middle of a show? How many of you have siblings? Show me, uh, okay, your sibling ever come in in the middle of a show that you're watching and they sit down and they're like, who's he? And you're like, oh, that's uh, uh, Jim. And you're like, why is he flirting with that secretary? And you're like, well, her name's Pam. And you're like, and he's like, wait, but who's that? Well, that's Pam's fiance. Wait, so why is he flirting with her? Well, and like four questions in, you're like, can you stop? Like, if you want to watch the show, watch the show, right? But, like, if somebody enters in halfway through a story, they're always confused and they always ask way too many questions. And so this is sometimes what we do with the Bible. We think the Bible's confusing, but a lot of the times it's because we're entering in, like, to, like, season four, episode seven, and we're like, huh? Like, what, what's going on here? So I, I want to just, like, talk about how we got here to set the stage a little bit for this week. Hey, we're going to be together six times, and so when we talk about exile, when we talk about Babylon, when we talk about Israel, when we talk about Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, like, maybe you've watched Veggie Tales, and you're like, nah, bro, I already got it, right? Like, I got the context I need. Like, maybe that's you. But if not, right, for the rest of us that didn't see the, like, Larry and Cucumber doing their thing, right, like, like if, you, if you didn't see that, like, I'm just going to, we're going to dive into a little bit of context for this story. Hey, so if you back up to... 2 Kings chapter 24, you don't have to turn there, but in 2 Kings chapter 24, we get introduced to this King Jehoiakim, and it says that he did evil in the sight of the Lord, which means, basically, God spoke, and King Jehoiakim went, mm, no thanks, right? We have two options. God speaks, and we can either trust what he says and who he is and do life his way, or we can kind of take life into our own hands. And now, you might have noticed that in this verse, in verse 2, it says, the Lord what? What does it say about the Lord in Israel and Babylon? The Lord delivered, gave. Good. The Lord delivered. Now, anybody else, or does that seem kind of messed up? Right? Like, God goes, hey, I need you to do a few things. And the nation of Israel goes, no, thank you. And he goes, fine, exile. Doesn't that seem a little harsh? Right? Some of you have this picture of God that's like, and he's like, ready? Here's a bunch of rules and regulations. Here's how you need to live your life. And you're like, oh, church, Bible, rules, regulations. I have enough rules in my life. And then we read a story like this where God goes, follow my rules. And the nation of Israel is like, mm, no thanks. And then God's like, fine, exile. And you're like, see, that's how God is. If we don't follow his rules, he just kicks us out. And we see this that God delivered. Because it's not like the nation of Israel got besieged by Babylon and God went, dang it. He wasn't asleep at the wheel. Right? Like if we, we're going to talk more about this this week. But if we go all the way back to the beginning of Genesis chapter 1, right? Like 
God creates the world, first man, first woman, Adam and Eve, and then it says that God was walking in the cool of the day, and Adam and Eve hid, and God said, where are you? Friends, the Bible's not a story about a God that like creates humans and then comes back and is like, I left them right here. God's not watching his nation, his people, get exiled, brought into Babylon, and going, I'm sorry, I apologize to all of you, right? That was like cutting a steak on a plate, and it's like, scratch, right? Like, God's not going, oh, no, my people. It says God delivered, God gave. So what's going on here? If you're taking notes today, I I want you to just jot down this chapter of this book. It's at Jeremiah chapter 25. And here's what we learn in Jeremiah chapter 25. It says that exile, which, again, if you're taking notes, you can just, if you want to define exile, it's to be forced out of your home country and forced to live somewhere else. Okay, so the nation of Israel's living in Israel, the nation of Judah's living in Judah. The Babylonians come in, they conquer. We see this throughout all of history. They conquer, and then the people are exiled into Babylon. Okay, so, in, but in, in Jeremiah chapter 25, here's what we see, that this exile, it came on the heels of 23 years of invitation. Okay, so seniors in the room, where are you? Hey, let's go, okay? So uh, seniors, how many of you seniors are 18 years old? 18, okay. All right, so your entire life plus five is the amount of time that God patiently worked with the nation of Judah just in this period of time, right? Like if you zoom way out in the story of the Bible, it's God, it's God working with his people so much more than that. But in Jeremiah chapter 25, we see that this specific exile came on the heels of 23 years of God going, hey, I'm gonna send you a prophet. I'm gonna send you a teacher. And all of these people went, hey, turn back to God's ways. Turn back to his decrees. Turn back to his laws. Turn back to him as your ultimate king. And the nation of Israel for 23 years went, no thank you, no thank you. We got it. We're gonna do life our way. No thank you. And so I don't want us to view this, like God as like this like angry child going like, which, trust me, as with a two-and-a-half-year-old at home, y'all, like, the amount of times she's like, can I have Milky? Milky, Dad, I want Milky. Milky now. And you're like, oh, my gosh, right? Like, I've never been so scared of a two-and-a-half-year-old. Right? Like, like, God's not sitting on his heavenly throne, and, like, the second Israel disobeys him, he's like, that's it. Get out. And you're like, jeez, big guy in the sky is a little grumpy, Right? It's 23 years of God patiently inviting back to do life his way. But this might bring up this question for you. You might go, why does God care so deeply about how I do life? Why does he have all these rules and regulations? Why does he have all these decrees and these commands? And so much of this, friends, is actually if we dive into God's word, we start to understand God and his character and why he asks us to do the things that he does. I'm a pastor down in San Diego. A couple weeks back, we did baptisms. Um, and we do them like in, in this like outdoor plaza at our church. And so we, uh, our facilities team sets up this like jacuzzi tub thing. And um, we, we do baptisms for the church. And so it's, it's fun to all come together. And it's like whether it was like a youth person or an adult in the church, we do baptisms. So this particular day, we were baptizing like 43 people or something like that. So if you do the math, it was like 43 people. 
times the people that are in the baptismal baptizing them, right? So minimum 86 people. So I'm watching this thing, and I, I got to baptize one of our freshman girls that, that day, and so I'm standing in the back, and we're, we're in the back, near the back of the line, and I'm watching this whole thing go down, and uh, <laughs> is this a safe space? Can I be vulnerable with you guys a little bit? Okay, as a pastor, I should be focused on like one thing and one thing only in this moment, and it's like how rad it is that this girl surrendered her life to Jesus and is now getting baptized as this like outward expression of an inward reality that she's now living her life with Jesus, right? That should be my like singular thought. <laughs> but if I'm being honest with you, a lot of me, the germ freak in me, was standing in the back of the line going, that baptismal is disgusting right now. Or like I'm watching this thing go happen and like people are like taking off their shoes and like I don't, your boy doesn't like feet. Like I'm just not a big fan. Like I, I just think they're kind of gross. And so like I'm watching people take off their shoes and like a lot of people I'm like, I don't know the last time you showered, right? And like that dry shampoo is not fooling anybody, right? Like, like that, there's like so much happening in this scene that I'm watching all these people get in the baptismal and then get like dunked and brought back up and everybody's celebrating. And like most of me is celebrating, but there's a part of me that's like, Yo, that water is, by the time I got up there, yo, is like murky, like murky. Like you, you used to be able to see the bottom of this baptismal, not anymore. And I'm like, <laughs> okay, all right. Like I baptize her, I get out of the water and I'm like, Ugh. and I go over and I'm standing with my wife chatting and like we're the stereotypical pastors that are like at church way too long. And so our kids are running around, right? The two month old is a track star already. And uh, we're just like, I'm watching Piper play, and every once in a while, I'm kind of like checking in on her, like, there she is, and then, you know, we go back to our conversation. And I kid you not, so my daughter's like bleach blonde hair, rosy red cheeks, like when she's running around and sweaty, like, it's very visible, it's very obvious. And so she's, she comes up to me, and she's like, Dad, I want water. And I'm like, baby girl, like, I have the water, but it's, it's like in the truck, can I get it for you in a minute? And she's like, mm-hmm. And so I'm like, all right, cool. So we go back to conversation. I, I lose Piper for a little bit. And I'm like, looking for her. And our facilities team, being the legends that they are, has already taken like the hose and they've like sucked all the air out of it and put it into the baptismal and started the like process of draining the baptismal. My daughter, in her infinite wisdom, <laughs> is at the end of that hose. <laughs> Sweaty, blonde hair, Gripping the hose, going, <laughs> gulping, like gulping this baptismal water. And I'm, I'm standing, I'm trying to have a focused conversation. I look over and I go, Ugh. I'm about to lose it. Like, I'm going to blow chunks, right, in the middle, like, in front of, it's like, this isn't good. And so I run over, like, I run to my truck. I grab her pink little, like, Yeti, like, filtered water from home, right, because I'm not a savage, and I, like, take this pink little Yeti, and I run over to her, and I'm like, Piper, like, please don't drink that, like, drink this, and she just looks at me, and she goes, no, and goes back. <laughs> and in this moment, I'm like, <laughs> no, I, I looks me square in the eyes, no, goes back to it, and I'm like, what have I done to earn this level of distrust? Right, like, what I have for you is so much better than the garbage that you're drinking right now. Like, what I'm inviting you into, like, the, the water that I have to offer you. And when I look at God's word, and I look at his decrees, and I look at his laws, and I look at the life that he invites into us, 
Y'all, when we go back to Genesis chapter one, do you, do you know the, the very first temptation? Right? We have a very real enemy. The Bible says he's, he's uh, like a roaring lion, like, like pouncing, waiting to trip us up. And it says that he's clever, that he's devious. Do you know the very first thing he said to God's creation? He looks at Adam and he looks at Eve and he said this, did God really say? Four words that changed the course of history. And if you're taking notes, write these two things down. This is what Satan was trying to get at with Adam and Eve. Can you trust God and can you trust what he says? Can you trust God and can you trust what he says? And all of our lives boil down to answering those two questions. Because when Jehoiakim did evil in the eyes of the Lord as king of Judah, do you know what he was saying? God, I don't trust you and I don't trust what you say. Because if we trust God enough to do what he says, that looks like obedience in our life. But it's not just this blind obedience, it's this invitation into life that's actually life. It's a trust that gives us hope. I promise you there isn't a more hopeless situation than being exiled from your nation. To be ripped out of what you call home and forced to live in another land. And th these four characters that we're going to see, Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and we're going to dive into their story this week. These four characters were walking into a hopeless situation and yet clung on to hope. How? Some of you walk into your high schools on a daily basis enter into your sports teams. Maybe for some of you, it's even in your own family and what looks hopeless around you, what I wanna invite you into is that God's word is saying, even in the darkest of moments in your life, you can cling on to a hope. How? And these two words, they're so tied together, trust and hope, that if we trust in God's character, in who he is, and in what he says, that in that trust is where we find our hope. The last place I want you to turn, and we're just gonna finish right here, is 1 Peter chapter one. It's all the way at the back of your Bible. It's probably easier to turn to like Revelation, the last book, and then to just like turn back to the left a little bit. 1 Peter chapter one. And I love these two books, mainly because I, I really like the, the, the guy who wrote them. Every time I read the Bible, I always want to ask the question, like, who wrote this? When did they write it? Why did they write it? Okay, Because the reality is the Bible wasn't written to you, but the Bible was written for you. Does that make sense? Subtle difference. The Bible wasn't written to you. So Peter didn't sit down and be like, hmm, dear Caroline. Right? Like he wasn't, he wasn't, he didn't have you in mind. The Bible's not written to you, but it is written for you. That these 66 authors writing these 40 books, that, that, that it says that it was breathed out by God, that God inspired this word, that he wrote it for us, for his church in the past, for his current church, and for his church in the future. And so when we read this book, we gotta go, who wrote it? And it's a guy named Peter. Peter's mentioned more times in the Bible, or sorry, in the Gospels than anyone except Jesus. 
Peter wrestled with what it looked like to follow Jesus, and he writes these letters, like these two small letters, to give hope to the church in a time that seemed hopeless. See, 1 Peter was penned. It was first written somewhere between 64 and 68 AD. And there was a guy in power at the time in Rome named Nero. And maybe you know your history that Nero was a brutal leader, especially when it came to Christians. See, now Christianity, a.k.a. following Jesus, had only been around at this point post-Jesus for probably somewhere between 30 and 40 years. And so Nero, as a leader, would literally take Christians, these people that had claimed that Jesus had lived, died, and resurrected, and he would throw them into an arena with lions just for entertainment. He would take them and he would dip them in oil and he would burn them alive to light his dinner parties. Like in first century following Jesus, it wasn't just like, do you want to be a Christian? Like you can come to church on Wednesday. It was like, to follow Jesus might cost you your life. Is it still worth it? Can you trust this God? Do you find your hope in him? And in the middle of seemingly one of the most hopeless eras of the church, this is what Peter writes. He says, praise be to the God and the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ in verse 3. In his great mercy, he has given us a new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus from the dead, and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade. Here's the words I want us to catch from this. A living hope that cannot perish, spoil, or fade. We're going to dive into a story where Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they seem to have this living hope that does not perish, that does not spoil, that does not fade. They are rooted and planted, even when they're not home, in a foreign environment that's hostile to who they are, to their God and what they believe. The people that they're about to surround themselves with live in direct, stark contrast to the way that their God has called them to live. And yet they seem to have this hope. And if you're sitting here today and you're struggling with hope, maybe you came up to this camp with a smile on your face, but you know deep down you're struggling. Maybe you're in a dark spot. Maybe if you and I could sit down and we could have a real conversation, you would go, things aren't going well for me. Now, I can have fun, I can distract myself, and I can play a sport, I can scroll on social media, but if we're being real, I don't have a lot of hope right now. And I definitely don't trust God. And we hear from a guy named Peter in the midst of a seemingly hopeless moment in the history of the church go, you can have a hope that will not perish, spoil, or fade. How? C.S. Lewis is one of my favorite theologians, favorite authors, and he said this. He said, if we find in this world, in your high schools, in your families, in your dating relationship, scrolling on social media, living life day in and day out, if you find in this world that nothing around you truly satisfies, maybe, just maybe, it's because we were made for another world. God is inviting you this week into life that's actually life, into having hope in him, into putting your trust in him. And if you're already following him, lean in this week and watch what God wants to do. If you're sitting here and you go, I don't know about any of this, lean in this week and watch what God wants to do. Pray with me. God, thank you for this morning. Thank you for Hume Lake. 
and we can come up here and remove some of the daily distractions of our life, God, just to lean into your word. God, may we hear from you this week. That maybe we take a moment of silence, a moment of stillness, and we just pause and we ask God that you would move. Holy Spirit, we welcome you in. We ask that you would convict where you need to convict, remind where you need to remind. God, that this would be a week that we look back on that's bookmarked in our life as the week that we decided that we wanted to walk fully with you, all in, that our hope would be fully in you, that we would trust you with our lives. We love you. Thanks for loving us first. In your name we pray. Amen. Amen.